strong! And welcome to The Jig Is Up. This is our first episode of the year with Jason. Welcome back to the show, buddy. Yeah, now that I'm like feeling better and don't sound like a uh, croaky toad when I talk. <laughs> so, uh, hey, we got a bunch of stuff to cover today. Um, I wanted to start off the day with uh, just a, a quick recap on land acknowledgements because this drives me crazy and there was some, a big event last weekend and, uh, you know, I, I think... Um, I think people, non-Indigenous people, don't understand what a land acknowledgement really means or what it's really supposed to mean um, because I think they just pan-Indigenize everybody and, and whoever has brown skin seems to be the guy, the person that does the land acknowledgement. Um, but, but it was interesting because we were in Blackfoot territory where I'm at in Calgary and we had Cree singers, Cree drummers, and Cree people doing the, the, you know, the prayer uh, and do and you know, but doing the land acknowledgement that we're on Blackfoot territory, and uh, I think that's a little weird, uh, especially considering you have Blackfoot people that are in the crowd, you have Blackfoot activists in the community, you have, I mean, there was there's some really awesome Blackfoot people that could have done that, but uh, so I think I just thought it was interesting that these non-indigenous uh, you know organizations or groups or rallies they don't seem to quite grasp what the land acknowledgement is. So that's my little gripe for the week. Yeah, I think, I mean, when we, we covered that in our last show, I think it really just goes to show that to the larger Canadian society that we really just have, uh, there's Indigenous people and there's, you know, the larger Canadian society. And as long as, long as you're engaging Indigenous people, well, then it's all good. Absolutely. You, did, you know, you did your best. <laughs> yeah, well, and, you know, because... They can never seem to figure out how to get a hold of anybody in, in you know, Blackfoot territory. That's I get that all the time. I hear that. Well, how do I find, you know, a Blackfoot person to... I'm like, seriously? <laughs> like, come on. It's really not that difficult. I mean, five seconds on Google, and I'm sure you could find somebody, but... <laughs> yeah, like the office number? <laughs> exactly. And then the thing that really drives me crazy, though, is acknowledging the traditional territory of Métis Region 3, which is for Calgary. Um, and I can't help but wonder, um, what is the traditional territory of Métis Region 3? When did that become traditional? Because, <laughs> I mean, I, I think we have to define what traditional means because Métis Region 3 didn't exist 50 years ago. <laughs> so <laughs> who's, the, who's the traditional Métis Region 3 people? I, I well, and and we and we Métis people, and I know the uh, the Blackfoot down in your territory have such an awesome relationship of uh, coexistence within that territory, you know <laughs> yeah. that that I'm sure they love hearing the fact that it's the traditional regional three. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's that, that, yeah, that that's probably comes up in a lot of ceremony and a lot of conversation. You know, traditional territory three. Well, that's I can't help but think if I was if I was Blackfoot, like how much that would annoy me. You know, um, I mean, to say it's a traditional territory, I, I don't know. I just, that drives me crazy. I mean, I've, I've, I do know a few people that do a land acknowledgement where they acknowledge kind of the people that are now living, like the Inuit and, and, and all the indigenous people that are now living in, in my area, Blackfoot territory. But it's, and, and they acknowledge Métis, but not as Métis Region 3 and some things like that. And it's not the traditional territory of... Everybody who's moved there now, 
but they do acknowledge yeah. the, you know, the the other indigenous groups, which I think is good. It's good to have inclusion, but I just thought, yeah, Métis Region Three. I don't think that's really traditional for anything. But <laughs> what do uh, I? Know? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't see that on on any treaty signings. But hey, I, I could be behind the times. Well, that's right. That's right. Um, and and hey, some big news came out uh, this week too. The Métis National Council's financials for 2017 were published, and there are some insane numbers in those financials. I, I don't oh, know if how we have... love those, the how we love financial statements. <laughs> it's it's crazy. Nothing makes my jaw drop quicker than seeing all those digits. Well, and it's you know it's on things that like I would expect. Okay, salaries, wages, things like that. I would almost expect there to be a fairly high number, um, but honestly, their their wages and salaries is actually quite low compared to the fact that they spend now spend forty six hundred dollars a day, more than forty six hundred per day, seven days a week, fifty two weeks of the year on travel. Like, mm-hmm. like uh, that just blows me away. I mean, I travel for a living, and I can't imagine forty six hundred dollars a day. Um, on top of that, you compare that with the uh, Assembly of First Nations, and their travel, but like spend expenditures were like nineteen hundred a day. And I don't know how that works because the AFN has a bigger base of people to deal with, to travel around to, and a much larger territory. So I'm not sure how you travel more within five provinces than you do within the entire country. It seems odd to me. And such a drastic change. Like, it's not like one is 10% lower. <laughs> it's like, you know, less than a 25%. Yeah, that it's it's a staggering number. I mean, given the fact that very few Métis people get the chance to travel with that kind of uh, opportunity, you know, there's such a big disparity between what the these guys at the top are receiving compared to what people in local communities ever see for assistance from that, the same organization. Absolutely. And I mean, you got to think too, like, because at first I was thinking, oh, well, but they got that, you know, million dollar bus and stuff, but that, that actually is not in the Métis National Council. That's in the Métis or Manitoba Métis Federation. So they're totally separate. So I'm like 4,600 a day. Wow. That's, that's pretty good. It's good living. Well, you get, you should take some uh, pretty nice trips. You should pretty much see, you know, you, on that kind of money, you think you should be able to personally shake hands with every Métis person in the province or in the country. Absolutely. I uh, I said online kind of, you know, a little snarky, but I'm like, you know, I think you could have a, a travel show on the travel network, like a TV show for that kind of budget. Uh, traveling around the world, man, for, on 5000 yeah. bucks a day. Métis pickers. You could <laughs> drive around and pick people's brains for that kind of money. And then... The other one that always kills me is the they spent over two million dollars. I think it was like two point one million dollars on professional fees. Yes, I love professional fees. Those are my favorite. Now I, I'm thinking th- perhaps they're using professional fees as like a slush fundy thing where eh, just throw it in professional fees. We'll just throw everything in there and whatever it, it's all good. Because, uh, yeah, like $2.1 million. And again, you compare that to the AFN, they did not spend $2.1 million on, or anywhere near it, on professional fees. So, <clears throat> Well, and that's what's shocking to me, is in what court case uh, went through last year that that money would have went to. Yeah. Well, there wasn't one. No, absolutely. You know, so 
what what are professional fees? Do they got some seriously high paid office staff? What I mean, do they got huge lawyers on retention? What what exactly is a professional fee to the tune of two million? Well, and I do know that uh, like whenever these guys may even attempt to make a decision, they're the first people they phone is lawyers. So, uh, you know, the fact that you have lawyers kind of advising on every single decision that's made or every single thing that goes on in your organization, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing perhaps that might be where the cost is being run up. But, uh, you know, I, I really think, I don't begrudge them the fact that they get a, a certain amount of money in their budget, but I do think that we could easily shift money around like any organization and actually spend it much better where it's much more needed than $5,000 a day travel and like over $2 million in professional fees. I think, like you said earlier, there's a lot of people that could use some some services. Well, I'm happy that Métis organizations are getting funding. I think that's that's a good step. I think the fact that so much money never leaves their office is a bit staggering. Yeah, it is. It really is. And then, you know, one of the things that I noticed when I looked at uh, the AFN um, reports, most recent reports, comparing them to the, the Métis National Council, is one thing I really noticed was the difference in reporting. So in the a AFN reports on, like, say, travel, they have to break it down into, so how much did you spend on travel for the MMIW? How much did you spend on travel for uh, land claims? How much did you spend on travel for this? And so... I actually had to go through, and I think there was about seven or eight areas of, or kind of topics that they had to report all their financials on and, and split it out amongst those those areas, um, which is completely not what the Métis National Council and its affiliates have to do. You know, they just say, we spent, you know, $4,600 a day on travel. You know, one point, whatever that is, $1.6 million or something like that on travel. Whereas the AFN has to break it down into each category. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I think that maybe ties back to a little bit of Indian Act involvement there maybe or something. Definitely could be. It is too bad that even on a voluntary basis that the uh, the National Council doesn't do that just so the membership would have a better idea where that money is being spent. Well, that's just it. I mean, if you sent a delegation to, uh, you know, an MMIW inquiry, even... Even four people, I, I know that that's going to run, you know, hotel rooms and meals and, and flights and, and that kind of stuff. So it is, it does get expensive, but you don't even know what they're doing with it. Like you don't know what they, where Yeah, it's that not even went. the cost. It'd be, it would be nice to say, oh, look, they did send people there or people did go to this event or there were people there. The thing is you have this money that got spent and no correlation to anything that actually happened. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, that's it's just some interesting numbers. Um, I mean, we you know we went through the last year's numbers before, and I don't think there's really any big surprises there. But like you said, I don't I don't uh, I don't think it's a bad thing that they're getting funding. I think it's good, but I just think it could be better spent in in better places personally. But yeah, and with a lot more transparency and accountability for sure. Absolutely. So um, I guess uh, one of the other big things uh, that I read in recently, anyway, was the uh, the Northwest Métis Nation, or, or sorry, Northwest Territories Métis Nation, which is not in any way affiliated with the other nations, the MNC and its affiliates, what we call the uh, the you know cartel. 
Um, they're doing a membership drive right now, and they're trying to bolster their membership up to about 5,000 people. And uh, because it has to do with their ability to vote on Canada's first Métis land settlement, which they're getting, I, I guess they're getting close to, to an agreement on with the Canadian government. I don't know if you had a chance to read that at all. Yeah, I did read that. I think it was uh, was fairly interesting. Uh, I do find it funny that for people who are uh, Red River-centric in their interpretation of uh, Métis identity politics, that they often forget our Métis kin to the north who are doing quite a bit to move a uh, land agreement forward. Now, luckily, when you're in the territories versus the province, there's a big uh, difference in the federal government's ability to settle land claims, which I bodes really well for them. And I hope, uh, you know, again, it'd be nice if they're a little bit more forthcoming in what exactly was going on and what that might look like, but I'm not a member, so maybe they are. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I I was reading they have about 3,000 members up there uh, now. Um, And it's very interesting because, you know, when you look at their (laughs) membership criteria, you have to be... Michelle Robinson, you have to be a Cree, Slavey, or Chippewa ancestor who lived in the South Slave region on or before December 31st, 1921. Um, so that's slightly different than, like you said, the, the Métis National Council and it's a, in the cartel's definition, um, which I find interesting because I've seen people in, that are heavily involved in the Métis Nation of Alberta sharing the, the article saying what a wonderful thing this is for their Métis kin. And I'm like, well, <laughs> how, how do you justify that? Like, how do you reconcile yeah, yeah. that? <laughs> I've seen a few comments like that, and people are saying, oh, look, isn't this positive? Look, isn't this good? Métis people are going to get land. And at the same time, there's the whole concept, according to the organization they support, that they're not even Métis. Yeah, and, and I, I agree with them. I think it's a great thing. I think I absolutely would support them any way I could, But uh, and I think it's great for Métis people all over Canada. I'm just really surprised to see the cartel people supporting this when it flies in the face of all their other posts saying, oh, there's no Métis outside of the homeland, and there's no Métis here and there and here and there. Well, <laughs> you, you can't have it both ways. Well, and the big thing for me is uh, the Northwest guys up there make no bones about that they're not affiliated with the uh, the cartels at all. Yeah. Uh, they make it very clear. They, they've demonstrated they have a very different mandate, and they have a very different membership process. And yet, when you're down here in Alberta, they seem people seem totally unaware of that, oblivious to the fact that they're not part of their organization at all. So, I mean, it's, it seems pretty funny to me that there's a real lack of information about what goes on. Well, absolutely. And then what's interesting is is how, you know, when you look at the Canadian government, how, you know, they're willing to work with this Métis organization who's outside of the cartel. But then if you go, well, what about organizations in the East or other organizations that represent, um, you know, even Red River Métis and... Their attitude is, uh, no, sorry, we we just we'll deal with the Métis nation nations. That's it. Um, because there's even there's organizations out east that have, you know, Red River descendants as their members, but they're living on the east coast, and yeah. they don't get any representation with the government. And and I I can't figure out why the government would, 
you know, they're just picking and choosing. Okay, so it's the cartel. And then this one group. And I'm, I'm like, I... It's, this really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's very hit and miss with the government. And I think it's a real shame. I mean, I think, uh, you know, the government's got to come up with a much better, you know, mentality when it comes to Métis people. Well, it's something that's much more inclusive. I mean, obviously the government's going to pay a lot more attention to the organization it personally funds. But I think there has to be a wider scope and given you know like we've talked about before the whole process of reconciliation one would hope there'd be a larger uh, wider inclusion of metis people and the organizations we choose to involve ourselves in well that's just it i mean if we have you know here in canada you have the charter rights and freedoms if you have a charter right to freely associate with you know then why can't we exercise that uh, the government of Canada says that they're intent on implementing UNDRIP, which is, you know, the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People. Well, if they're intent on that, in there it clearly states that Indigenous people get to pick who their political representation is. So it actually is not, it, it is, there's no law that mandates the government only deal with certain Métis organizations. So that there's no requirement, like this is just the Canadian government choosing to pick and choose who they they want to talk to but really there's no basis for that there's no foundation for it um and you know because people want to deal with one organization and have them represent them as opposed to the other it, it shouldn't matter to them really i mean at the end of the day there's only so many metis people so i mean and i know it makes it easier for them to only deal with one but that's you know easier path is not necessarily the right path and that's right. And I think in the day and age that we live in, we talk a lot about inclusion. We talk a lot about, uh, you know, the freedom of association, the freedom to form your own organizations and to do those kinds of things. And yet when it does come to Métis people specifically dealing with the federal government on any real issue, they are very selective and very restrictive of who they will talk to. Absolutely, and I think the irony, I mean, it's definitely not lost on me that we have a government right now who just prides itself on, you know, the Prime Minister being the first Prime Minister in a gay pride parade, and, you know, all of their ministers make it out to every single pride parade they possibly can, because we're all about inclusion and acceptance and, and you know, not judging people, and and yet, like you said, when it comes to Métis people, well, they, they just kind of dial that inclusion and acceptance back a little bit, Um to basically nothing. <laughs> and, uh, well, to, to the horse pony, right? Yeah, exactly. Which is which is funny. I mean, not to play party politics. I mean, blue, red, or orange, they're kind of all the same because it all boils down to money. That's what the real issue is. Um, so I'm not really trying to knock the liberal government. I mean, the conservatives will come in and they'll they'll be just as bad. But uh, you know, it's, it's, I just find it interesting. There's so much in. They're so proud of their inclusiveness. It, Except for Métis people. Yeah. Then you got to prove power. As long, yeah, as long as we don't have to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. So, yeah, that was kind of all the things I noticed in the, in the news. I don't know if there's anything that uh, you noticed that kind of stuck out for you, Jason, or if there's anything you want to cover about these other subjects we already talked about. But um. well, One of the things that did uh, pop up, uh, kind of in my news feed that I thought was uh, fairly interesting was the uh, article that was circulating this week uh, from 1910 about the eviction 
of Métis people from Jasper. Oh, yeah, I did see that, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I thought it was good. I, I don't know how many people know that, that, you know, um, before there was a park there, Métis people had a, you know, a small settlement. Yeah, I think that's kind of a forgotten piece of Alberta history, which is pretty sad. I mean, up, up until, you know, maybe three, four years ago, I had no idea that that had happened. Um, so I thought it was great to see an, an article actually being published more recently. This was, I think it was January, you know, January 24th or, or no, <laughs> that would be in the future, Darcy. Uh, I think it was like <laughs> the 14th or something. Um, but, and I don't know why that got brought up. Maybe there was something that happened in the area. I don't know, but, uh, it was nice to see an article. Yeah, it was, it was a, you know, a good reminder to people. And I think it's nice to see things like that being made public that Métis people have do have a long, uh, rich history in, in some pretty, you know, what we'd consider frontier places, uh, before Alberta was a province and, uh, you know, and how some of those things went poorly for Métis people with, you know, and I think uh, when we talk about Métis people having access to places like Jasper Park, those things need to be taken into consideration. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think it's a good reminder for Albertans to to realize what the Alberta history is. I mean, so much of our history for Métis people and First Nations and, and Inuit and, and who, you know, anybody in any part of this country is not taught. So it's nice to see stuff like that come out where maybe some people in the general public, like the non-Indigenous public, will read it and maybe give them a little understanding of of why Métis people... You know, want to talk about land and what you know, but it, it's just sad that such a big part of Métis or um, Alberta history has just been kind of erased throughout the years. As nobody knows that, you know. Yeah, and I, I hope things like this come. It's nice to see them come to light, especially as we talk, you know, about getting Métis people, you know, access to parks and, and things like that. That you know, that there's a good reason for it. It's not that. Just because we're Métis people, we deserve to have free things. It's because we have a historical tie to to the park, and that the Overlander was, you know, that whole pass and trail was forged by Métis people and settling in that area. So, yeah, absolutely. And uh, another interesting point is I don't think anybody from the Jasper area had a tie to Red River, other than I think one family uh, came from Quebec. And stayed in Red River for the remainder of a, of a really harsh winter before moving on to Jasper. I think yeah, that was the true. only tie to Red River I could find when I was researching them. I believe you are a correct, sir. That was my understanding. But again, you know, I guess they fit the definition somehow. <laughs> you know, it, it's we interesting. Just, you want to talk about close, like right? fa- fa- logical fallacies? Like I just, I don't know. You, we throw they throw around these definitions, but then include anybody who might have some land. Yeah, or right, right, you know, rights to land. Yeah, yeah. If you got rights to land, boy, you must be Métis. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> Even if, if you don't meet our definition those... at all, but okay, yeah. we'll throw you in there too. That's right. But if you're some, you know, uh, you know, Daniel's only Métis, well, you can't really be Métis. Well, exactly. Well, what I find, you know, again, there's all these identity arguments online, and I don't really want to get too much into identity tonight. But I always. Uh, I had read this thing from a lawyer a couple weeks or a month before Christmas. And in there they stated that, um, you know, all these communities that want, you know, that consider themselves Métis, just because they haven't proven through a court decision that they are, doesn't mean that they're forever not Métis. 
And I thought that was interesting that lawyers could come up with that mentality. But yet, the Red River Métis guys can't seem to grasp that. That, hey, maybe there are some jokers trying to get steal Métis identity. I'm sure there are. I don't understand why, but I'm sure there are. But the truth is, is there is a lot of communities that are Métis communities from all over the country that just simply haven't gone through the court system yet and proven their case to, to the Pauli extent. But that doesn't make them less deserving of the title Métis, just because the Canadian courts haven't approved you as Métis. And that's, that's my little gripe about the identity thing that just kind of irritates me. Well, and, and from an Indigenous perspective, or really for us, it means that we would even bother to use uh, some kind of colonial criteria, and especially, you know, how ludicrous is it we'd use a, a ruling from the Canadian Court of Law to determine who we are as a people. And yeah. the, this argument of Pauli Métis, Daniels Métis, that just is a total face palm to me, because at what point did the Métis people stop determining for themselves who we are? Exactly. Exactly. No, and I mean, you can go on and on. And it, we were kind of talking about this before the podcast about how circular these these uh, Facebook posts and everything are, where it's just, you know, like you, you, you were saying, you could go back and, you know, copy and paste your argument from a month ago about something and post it as if, as if it's new again. And we just kind of keep running in circles on this Métis issue. And then somebody new will come in and they know the real answer and they'll just take a whirlwind tour across Facebook about how the real Métis are the people from here. And and then you get back into these circles again. I'm just arguing about it. I don't know. It's, yeah, I know. That, that's what we were joking about, right? It's it's. You know, these Johnny come late, at least to the conversations, you can literally just copy and paste your old argument and, and throw it back up on there. So uh, a warning to all our listeners, if we're not commenting on your post, it's not that we didn't see it, it's that we've already addressed it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and I've actually noticed since Christmas, my, my Facebooking and, and social media stuff has completely dropped off just because I read stuff and it's like, oh, well, we, we talked about that like six months ago. I've posted about it. I, I don't know what more there is to do here. Like, Well, exactly. I mean, how many shows do we have to do on identity politics? How many discussions do we got to get in on Facebook and Twitter? And uh, it just, it they haven't changed. And literally, I can copy and paste my post and jab it into that conversation. And it would make coherent sense like it did the first time. But the conversation <laughs> hasn't changed. <laughs> Yeah, maybe that's what we should do if we're ever feeling sick. We'll just repost an, an episode as a brand new episode and see if anybody catches it. And we'll just have it an identity conversation. Yeah. <laughs> from, yeah. from, you know, June of last year. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> so one of the things uh, that I did, speaking of something we talked about before, though, uh, I guess the Canadian government is moving forward with the exoneration of Chief Poundmaker. And so that kind of opens up the conversation. Can we maybe see Riel get the next exoneration? Um, well, why why Riel's not getting the first one? I'll never know. I mean, they didn't hang Poundmaker. You know what I mean? <laughs> this is true. Yes, absolutely. And and really, this this really sticks with me because it really boils down to the only reason Riel is not getting exonerated first is because of the MNC. Yes. Yeah, because they oppose it. And that kind of frosts my cookies. Well, it does because, you know, again, you know, they, they brag about having the, the personal line to the prime minister. 
well then use it for something good like this like how does it change your position in any way shape or form to have to support this movement to exonerate louis riel i, th I think it's I, I can't even imagine what motivates you to say no um well if you i mean this is something that that i think is a serious topic and i think if you're a Métis person and you think that there is no value in having Louis Riel exonerated, I'd like to hear from that person because this is someone in the Canadian state's mind. His picture hangs on the halls of Manitoba as the father of Manitoba, you know, uh, bringing Manitoba into Confederacy. But at the same time, he's a criminal. Yes. A, a convicted criminal who was hung. Yes, and not for and like a little crime, like treason. So he's traitor. a traitor. So a traitor is the father of Manitoba. Yeah. And we should just as Métis people sit back and say, oh, yeah, that's great news. <laughs> well, you know, uh, we are, uh, like, I'm, I'm working on an, um, an episode where we talk about the, the challenges facing uh, university students, Métis university students. And mm -hmm. when I'm compiling the information, there was a couple of emails, a couple of uh, Facebook messages that I got. And... It was very interesting to note that you, what is being taught about Riel in post-secondary, we're not talking high school or junior high, we're talking university-level courses on Indigenous studies, and they're teaching that Louis Riel was a traitor, it was a rebellion, and those are the words they're using, because that's what he is, and that's what it was, according to the Canadian government still. And that, I think, you know, boils, we've talked about it before in the podcast, and that boils, to me, that boils the argument right down to why we need to do it. Because we need to change that narrative from him being a traitor and a rebellion to a father of confederation, father of Manitoba, you know, um, and a resistance more than anything. Because, but, but the, all these students are coming through school learning that he's a traitor. And, and this is in the Indigenous Studies courses at universities. <laughs> Absolutely, and that's why that when we talked about this before, that's why one of the number one reasons I want the exoneration is because if he's legally exonerated by the Canadian state, then the publication material that they put out legally has to change. And yeah. then these issues are solved. You can't say that he's a traitor and there was a Métis people had a rebellion if you exonerate the guy. Exactly. You, you, you can't, you know, you can't do that. And as long as we say, oh, let the stain remain with some kind of attitude of being proud, we allow these kinds of things to go on in academia. Yeah. Well, and, and the logic behind not supporting the exoneration, like I think before he, he had said, if I remember correctly, that uh, to the Métis people, Louis Riel didn't commit any crimes, so there's no point in it. And it's like, well, that's like saying, you know, oh, that guy's sitting on death row. We Everybody knows he's innocent. But who cares? We'll just let him sit there on death row. Like, that doesn't make any sense. If we all know he didn't commit crimes, then why is he still booked and it's on the books that he committed a crime? I mean, it's just common sense to exonerate somebody who did not commit a crime. Well, and let's use the system for what it is. Let's use the Canadian system at its best, and let's change the legal status of Riel, and let's change the ability of the Canadian state to make the educational material the way they do. Absolutely. I mean, it seems pretty straightforward. It does nothing, doesn't change my opinion. I don't think he was ever guilty. I don't think he ever did treason. I, you know, I don't think any of those things are true. But I really would like the Canadian state to change the narrative 
of how they talk about these things in their academic circles. And this is the only way to make that happen. Absolutely. Because you got to remember like for, it's not just indigenous people taking indigenous studies courses. So here we have non-indigenous people and what are they learning? They're learning that he's their whole lives. All they're taught is he's a traitor and he was, it was a rebellion. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully they form their own opinion after actually educating themselves outside of the system. But statistics show that that doesn't happen. That once you graduate university, most people never read another book in their life. So, <laughs> <I> no <know>, way. Eh? <laughs> you know how how are you expecting to see reconciliation and see changes in attitudes? Because we're not talking about changing. Oh, now once he's exonerated, oh well, then the floodgates will open and the Canadian government's funding will just. We're not talking about that. We're talking about shifting an attitude within the Canadian non-Indigenous population. And that is fundamental to moving forward as, on reconciliation of any type or level. You have to change exactly. their attitudes. That's it. If we can't change the narrative, how do we change the opinion? Exactly. Exactly. And, and so if, we, if we're going to let people to be educated to believe that Riel was still a traitor, well, then how are we ever going to have reconciliation? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's... It's like saying when uh, when you're faced with the the reality that most Canadians still believe that First Nations people get just a blanket free education and no pay no taxes. You you have to combat that. You have to educate people. You have to fight against that so that the narrative changes so people start to understand. You can't just go, "Eh, well, that's what you believe. Okay. Can we talk about re-? you know like you can't <laughs> you can't talk about reconciliation until the attitude starts to shift to an understanding attitude. And, uh, well, if people believe, though, that, that uh, education is somehow the new buffalo, then would we want the education system to reflect the truth? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It, I mean, it seems pretty straightforward. So I, I get very frustrated when, you know, when we can see that other obvious people who should be on the list to be exonerated, like, no kidding. And we still have this ongoing conversation because of the, the Métis National Council that Riel is not on the fast track to make that happen. Exactly, because I mean, why is why is uh, Chief Poundmaker getting exonerated? Because First Nations people push for it, and they came together to push for it, um, and and that's just the reality. And Métis people, see, to me, this is where this all all of this infighting and de- fighting about identity and fighting about this and that and the other thing in East, West, and North, South, and you know who's right and who's wrong and what's the you know it, it's all of that fighting stops us from getting anything done like exonerating Louis Riel. Um, like seeing yeah, what you and I would con- we, we, Yeah, what you and I would consider low-hanging fruit, something very easy that we could achieve that would be beneficial. Absolutely. So, yeah, no, it, it drives me crazy. And I'm, I don't know. I guess we could go on about that too. But, uh, yeah, it's, I just hope that maybe we will see the... Because I know there is a group on Facebook and there's a group that is actively trying to get him exonerated. And they have a petition out there. And I just, I hope we see some movement there, at least in my lifetime. I really do hope we see this happen. Me too. Um, and one of the other things uh, kind of related, well, not really related, but I'm going to say it's kind of related, is uh, I actually spent the morning one the other day listening to the arguments made to the Supreme Court of Canada in the um, Mikasu Cree versus Canada decision. I don't know if you know much about that, Jason. Not tons, just stuff in passing. 
So essentially, from my very basic understanding of it, is they're they're fighting Harper's changes to uh, environmental protection laws, uh, saying that they, there should have been a duty to consult with First Nations and with Indigenous people. And it's in the Supreme Court, and I guess, from what I kind of was understanding of the arguments, and, and I could be totally off here, but I think what they're really looking for is the recognition that when it comes to certain laws, like environmental laws and things like that that have to do with the land, um, they want the Canadian government to kind of be held to the same account as they are with charter rights. And they want treaty rights to be held to that kind of same level. Um, at least that's how I understood what they were arguing, was it, it's not a duty to consult on every single law that Canada passes. Before it passes, it has to pass, you know, Indigenous approval. But what it is is more of a, if they're going to pass laws, they have to pass laws that will you know, stand up in court to a treaty challenge, just like they have to are supposed to pass laws that stand up in court to a charter challenge. And so it kind of puts treaty rights and charter rights sort of in that same level, um, where it's pre-law you know, pre passing that they have to consider these things. And I thought that was a really interesting case. And uh, sadly, I, th I thought uh, listening to the Supreme Court for three hours was quite interesting that morning, so... Yeah, I mean, kudos for you for uh, having the time and the wherewithal to stick that <laughs> business out. Uh, I, I have I have followed a little bit, not nearly with that kind of a depth, and I'm quite curious to see uh, where this goes because it could, you know, open a bit of a floodgate. I think in in when we talk about reconciliation, making sure that treaty rights, charter rights, uh, as far as the Canadian framework goes, uh, get a lot closer on the same page. Absolutely, and I think one of the things that I'm concerned or curious about is how this will affect, um, you know, in Métis people and, and things like that because it was specifically talking about treaty uh, rights. And so I, I, my understanding is if you're not on the treaty, then you technically don't get that same legal standing in, in this type of case. So I'm, I'm very curious to see what happens, what the decision is. But also, you know, even if it goes in their favor, how does this affect Métis people? How does it affect, uh, you know, people that are non-treaty? Like, um, because the, the flip side to this, I guess, from what I understood their arguments to be, is that any modern treaty, if, if this doesn't uh, get, get supported, or I guess if they don't win their case, it basically takes the guts and the any standing of any modern-day treaty and kind of dumps it in the garbage um, because the modern-day treaties then won't have any real standing. Like, there's no there's no point to them. The government can just do whatever they want anyway, so what's the point in signing a treaty? Uh, so mm -hmm. I think that was an yeah. interesting aspect, too. Yeah, definitely uh, something to keep an eye on. I'm, I'm no lawyer by any stretch, but I'm definitely interested to see what happens out of this. Yeah, me too. I am very interested. I'm very curious to see because the, the justices on the Supreme Court now, maybe they were purposely being very antagonistic, but there was a couple of them that I think the idea that the Canadian government couldn't just pass whatever law it wanted was a very foreign concept, was a very scary concept. And I, I really got that impression from a couple of the justices that 
it was very clear that the, the the Canadian government is up, you know, at the top, and Indigenous people are little way down here at the bottom, um, and they're not equals. <laughs> so why should they have any say on laws that are passed? And so well, that's again, the yeah, only exactly. downside. No, I thought. No, yeah, that is, and you definitely begin to see what reconciliation really means. And when they say nation to nation, you really the court is really tipping their hand is the one thing I did notice really tipping their hand about how they actually feel about what that means. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's a real good catchphrase nation to nation, but unless like uh, nation to nation would be, well, if you're going to pass laws that affect our land and water, we better have some say in it. Um, well, exactly. We should have the ability to say no. Yeah. And uh, I think it's, it's very interesting if it does go through, I think it changes I think it's a huge game changer for a nation-to-nation relationship, and I think it it uh, would be phenomenal for for Indigenous people. Uh, my fear is is that of course that the Canadian uh, you know the Supreme Court is not going to rule in their favor just simply because it puts Indigenous people too close to that top ring where the power really is, and I think that's a scary, scary concept for um, you know most of Canada. Um, but we'll see. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm totally. I hope I'm totally wrong. I hope so. I I don't know if the sovereignty of the crown has the the flexibility to do what's right in this situation. But definitely watching with keen interest. Absolutely. And I I'm sure it'll probably be you know six eight months or a year before we actually get the decision. So it'll be it'll be interesting when it does come out. Absolutely. Um, one of the things you sent me uh, here a little earlier was there's. Merchants of the Wild. Do you want to, I guess, tell tell us a little bit about that? Well, I actually don't know a whole lot about it. It just was one of the things that popped up in my feed that I thought was actually kind of interesting. Again, I, I think sometimes I live under a rock because they were talking about casting for season two of <laughs> Merchants of the Wild. And I'm like, season two? I didn't even know there was a season one. Yeah, I think I heard about this or something, but I don't... I didn't know when it aired. I didn't even hear that it was on TV. It, it, I knew nothing about it. But essentially, it's uh, indigenous men and women over the age of 18 living on the land for 30 days and you, with nothing but uh, the knowledge of the elders. Like, no no luxuries, no modern-day anything. And uh, so it's kind of a neat concept. I'd love to watch the show. Yeah, I'm going to have to find it. It looks very interesting. I think that would be... I mean, an awesome opportunity. I mean, if you are uh, of that age and could spend that time, I think, man, would you ever want to take advantage of that opportunity? Um, Because I don't know, is there a better way to spend your time? I mean, I love the outdoors. I mean, I'm a little over 18, though. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but see, you qualify. You just have to send a two-minute video and then just make it really good. And you're good at videos, so spruce it up. (laughs) Spruce it up, eh? Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. <laughs> no, I thought I think it's be really cool. I, I would love to do it, but uh, yeah, I got too many uh, commitments. Yeah, sadly, me as well, my friend. I think uh, someone would have to pay my my mortgage for the month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I I don't know if there's a big grand prize. I didn't see that in there, so I don't know if it'd make it worth it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, okay. if you come home, you got no house, and you're living on the street, it probably wasn't a good idea to go. Well, I'd be just like living in the show then. <laughs> yeah, I guess it pre- prepares you well. <laughs> for, for being homeless, yeah, because that's what I would be. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, uh, but if you haven't tuned into the show, check it out. I thought it was a really interesting idea, and uh, I'm going to try to see if I can find some of the uh, season one episodes. Yeah, absolutely. And they said uh, send a two minute video to the, the email is on the. If you go to the Facebook and just hurry, type in Merchants of the Wild, you'll find it. And send them a two minute video if you want to do it. I think, or if you know somebody who wants to do it, let them know. Uh, the applications are due by February 15th, so get it in, man. That'd be fun to do. Yep. And uh, by all means. Yeah, absolutely. I other than that, I got a couple of events I want to talk about coming up in the Calgary area. Um, so the first one is chapters and chat, which is um, I don't know if anybody tuned into the last episode, which was a recording I did at the at a chapters and chat book club where they were kind of talking to the author about uh, Secret of the Stars. Um, so that was actually a really interesting conversation. I hope you know. I hope people like the podcast. I hope they liked it. Um, but the next step, uh, version of that to chapters and chat is on February 19th and they're going to be looking at the book talking or, uh, I am woman by Lee Miracle. So if you, oh. if you've read the book or in, you're in the Calgary area and you want to go and talk about it check them out on Facebook, just type in chapters and chat and you'll find it. Uh, but it's February 19th and, uh, yeah, it'll be really cool. And then for those that, that are interested, if you do go, uh, they do have some funding for the books, so there's a good chance that you'll get a free copy of whatever their next book is to take home and read and absorb. So that's kind of a cool. Excellent. Who doesn't like a free book? Exactly. Expand your library and get to talk to Indigenous people. Uh, exactly. About... Don't be a unit. Don't be a. Don't be a statistic. Read a book since you got out of high school. <laughs> that's right. Absolutely. And then the other one I want to talk about is on February 14th, and I think. This I'm pretty sure this is maybe you know spanned out into other areas of Canada, but on February 14th is the 10th annual Valentine's Day Women's Mar- Memorial March, uh, and it started off as a, kind of a way to honor missing, and murdered Indigenous women. in In Calgary, it starts at 6:30 p.m. And if you want more information, just head to Facebook and search for Valentine's Day Women's March. And for all those women that uh, non-Indigenous women that went to the Women's March uh, last weekend. This is a great opportunity to show your support for Indigenous women and come to that Indigenous Women's March that's been happening for 10 years that doesn't get nearly as many people going. So make sure you you get to that. And if there's any Métis men or women out there, please, on February 14th, get out there and and march. And uh, I think there's a little bit of food or snacks provided too. So head out there and get that done. Uh, yeah, show your support. Absolutely. Any any other thoughts, your wondrous things you need to impart with us, Jason? No, that was about it. I've been work work's been keeping me hopping, and then all the Facebook things have been keeping me face palming. So, <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad to have you back for the your first episode of 2018. Ooh, yay me! It was yeah, starting it was starting to feel like you were Waldo, and we were going to have to come find you somewhere. Could have been. It was close, man. Touch and go. Touch and go. <laughs> well, I think that's it uh, for both Jason and I. I hope everybody has a great next two weeks. And that's it. The jig is up. You are the spark that's starting a fire that will spread across this land. And it will be a fire that doesn't burn, but a fire that cleanses. A fire that ignites in our hearts and creates light. No more living in darkness. Our time now.